0: Hello and welcome to a series of short podcasts titled Regulation and Reputation, Two Sides of the Same Coin. These podcasts are being released as part of Osborne Clark's 2023 Disputes Week, a series of webinars, videos and podcasts which take a pragmatic and commercial look at current disputes issues facing companies and their in-house legal teams. My name is Henry Fox and I'm a commercial disputes lawyer here at Osborne Clark with a particular focus on media and information related disputes and my work in Includes advising clients on reputation and crisis related issues. In each session of this series, I'll be joined by a different guest and we'll take a look at some of the different contexts in which the worlds of regulatory disputes and reputational issues collide. And we'll discuss how clients who are caught up in regulatory matters can take steps to protect their reputations. In this session, I'm speaking to Chris Wrigley, an associate director at Osborne Clark, who also sits as our Co-Head of Global Compliance, and is a key member of our ESG team. Chris, thanks for joining me. Um, Can you start by explaining the various areas that your practice covers?
1: Hi Henry, yes, certainly so. My core areas are advising clients on sanctions, bribery and corruption, and modern slavery. Um, That is all done in the context of helping particularly multinational clients with a worldwide footprint. Um, prioritise and identify their key compliance risks. Um, Recently, in the last 12 to 18 months, a lot of that work has focused around emerging risks related to supply chains and also helping clients
0: get on top of a lot of these issues in the context of their ESG strategies thanks chris I, I, And I know there are there are reputational uh, risks in many, if not all of the areas uh, in which you advise, but um, given time constraints, can i can I ask you whether there are any particular risks which spring to mind um issues you've seen recently uh, or perhaps issues coming down the track in, in the near future?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. so I think the first one and one that a lot of people will be aware of over the last um, year or so is the development of sanctions. Uh, regimes by the EU, the UK, the US and others um, against uh, Russia and uh, Belarus and the impact that has had on companies and businesses trying to trying to work in those jurisdictions and who who are present in those markets. And what's been really interesting is that on top of just ensuring that you are complying with the legal requirements, what we've seen is actually an element of self-sanctioning where businesses have sought to remove themselves from those markets um because of the uh the kind of reputational damage that could be seen and and to the extent that i can remember watching news programs where some of the stories were highlighting companies that were still operating there and that's been a real challenge for um for many companies um firstly just ensuring that if they are going to exit, that they exit in a way that is still compliant with um, sanctions, um, particularly if you're trying to sell what you're leaving behind, Um, but also where you are concerned about those that you are leaving behind. Obviously, it's not just a business. There are people on the ground, and, um, and a number of clients I've worked with have really wrestled with how to protect those people while ensuring that they are complying with the sanctions law, but also um, acting in their in their own best interests. Um, the second thing that we've seen, and, and something that has been growing for a while in the broader context of ESG, which has been a focus um, certainly over the last 18 months for businesses outside the FS sector, um, a real concentration recently on supply chain risks. And part of this is due to developments that are coming down the line in the EU, with the um, European Sustainability Due Diligence Directive. Um, there is the Sustainability Reporting Directive that's also coming in. There is a Labour Exploitation Regulation in the pipeline, which is intended to ensure that no products or services are offered on a UK mar- on a EU market, or exported or imported to the EU that have modern slavery in their supply chains. And so something that has been a reputational and ethical concern for businesses already has become, in the context of the due diligence requirements that are coming in, um, a more uh, involved procedure, but also in terms of the, the regulation, um, a potential market access issue, which is, um, which is a, I, I think, potentially game-changing.
0: Chris, that's really interesting, particularly as regards um, supply chains that we've seen uh, in recent years, um, quite a few uh, media exposes of, of household names having um, issues with their supply chains, particularly around modern slavery. Um, do you think they're having those sorts of stories have more of a reputational impact now than perhaps they used to?
1: I think they do, because I think the awareness of these issues has grown significantly, and it's grown significantly um, amongst consumers, but also amongst businesses. And so if you're a business that is potentially exposed to these issues, and that's being reported publicly, you won't just have consumers, if if you're a consumer business, um, asking questions about it. You may also have suppliers and um, corporate customers, because they are having to account in their ESG strategy and their approach um, for... Their supply chains, and if you're potentially an issue in that supply chain, that is something that they're under pressure to um, to address.
0: And that's a, a neat point to segue into ESG. Obviously, that's a that's a, a key part of your work, and and a very important issue for many clients. Uh, in some ways, it can be used as a as a as a, as a means of improving a client's reputation. Um, but where do you think it can go wrong?
1: I think the real challenge, and it's something that we've seen over the last six or nine months, particularly with with an increasing focus on greenwashing, is that it is not enough to have an ESG strategy that is um, words on your website with nothing behind it. There has to be substance to this. And part of that is because when you're being rated for ESG um, and there are various... um, uh, websites and other uh, vehicles which are scraping public data and looking at companies and, and their ESG ratings and what they say and what they actually do. And it's important that you're backing up what you've said with what you do, because inconsistency can be um, a real problem here and really undermine the efforts you are making. And the what that comes down to, interestingly, is not just Um, the kind of supportive words at the board level to begin with, but actually the real resourcing and tone from the top to drive these priorities in a business so that the strategies are actually enacted and lived by, and that can be demonstrated to um, potential investors, to potential employees, and to uh, the wider public.
0: Uh, It's interesting, and I I think... um, It, you, you talked about the, the scraping of publicly available information. And is it the case that you know, news stories about ESG-related issues could uh, have a knock-on effect on, on, a, on a client's uh, uh, ESG rating as a result of, uh, of the uh, media coverage being scraped?
1: I think that that's possible um, because some of the there are a number of different organisations. Um, measuring the ESG of companies in different ways, but some of them are just looking at public sources of information. And so if you've got news stories about um, problematic issues that go to ESG, then that um, could potentially have a very negative impact. A A really simple example of how this can impact you is that the UK has a fairly light modern slavery corporate reporting obligation, the um, the basic obligation is to say what you've done in the last financial year to ensure slavery and human trafficking isn't occurring in your business or your supply chains. Um, and there are other there's other context that you can put to that in the statement, but that is that is a basic statement, and a lot of companies meet that requirement in one to two pages. But there is a obvious exposure if what you're saying in that statement doesn't align up with your reality. And that can be particularly brought home if the press uh, have alighted on an issue that you aren't addressing in your um, in your non slavery statements.
0: Well, well, Chris, we could speak a lot longer on these issues, but um, to wrap up, what would your top tips be uh, for the sorts of clients that you advise uh, and who might be concerned about safeguarding their reputation in some of these uh, in some of these areas?
1: I think. It's about a risk-based approach. Um, very few, if any, businesses have the resources um, and the approval to use the resources to address every issue everywhere that they are. What you need to do is understand the risks, and those are legal risks, commercial risks, reputational risks, and make a judgment on the prioritization of that. And then you at least have the uh, the reassurance of knowing that you are focusing on your biggest and most concerning risks that are out of alignment with your risk appetite, but that also if something arises in another area that you've deemed low risk, you at least have a justifiable starting point to say, look, we considered this risk, but there were more pressing issues elsewhere. Um, I think the the key is not to be caught um, with issues that you weren't aware of because that's when you're most exposed.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with all that. So in my experience of um, advising clients yeah, in the in the situation of having received a pre-publication inquiry from a from a newspaper or, or from a, a broadcaster on these sorts of issues, very often the client will have a very short period of time in which to respond to that inquiry, and it, it can make life very difficult if you're having to scrabble around trying to gather information um, uh, regarding you know, supply chains or whatever it might be um, at, at, in in that time frame. And, by contrast, having that relevant information at your fingertips um, means that you can quickly assess you know, what the correct position is and how to respond.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that I think that's very true. Not only can you have the information to formulate your initial response in terms of practically what you're going to do. Um, for example, if you've got a report of one slavery down one of your supply chains, understanding who's in your chain of suppliers, what you have in the contracts. Um, that enable you to um, gather information and exert leverage to to fix any identified issues, the more you understand that information at the outset, the easier and the quicker it's going to be. I think, and particularly in the context of modern slavery, I think as transparency increases across supply chains, more businesses are going to be encountering this more often. And a bit like whistleblowing. Whistleblowing is an important Um, source of information flowing up to your senior management when there are no whistleblowing reports rather than that being indicative of there being no issues, it rather indicates that your whistleblowing isn't working. And I suspect we'll end up in a similar place with modern slavery and and the conditions of workers in supply chains in that if your position is that, oh, we have no problems at all and there's nothing wrong, I think that is going to um, induce scepticism in the same way because These issues are widespread, particularly in more complicated worldwide um, supply chains. And it's going to be a question of how companies um, address them when they do arise. Um, And that will be how companies are judged in the future.
0: Chris, this is all hugely topical. And as I say, we could do a much deeper dive into some of these issues. But uh, that's all we have time for today. Um, Thanks very much for sharing uh, your insights on your area of practice.
1: Thank you, Henry.